tell you which one. What happens when you sit in the front row, you get asked questions. <laughs> <laughs> the people in the back have to watch out for that, too. More, any more? Looking for work this morning? Fire should be here any minute, but let me go ahead and begin with prayer. We'll get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, who see us that we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves, keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body, and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> I am happy, even thrilled, perhaps even ecstatic, to start a new uh, teaching series this morning, which, if you have your handy-dandy handout in front of you, is titled The Historic Church in the Modern World. I've struggled coming up with the title. I'm still not happy with it, but it's the best I could do. Um, why this title? Well, there's obviously two parts. You see, there's something called the Historic Church, and there's the Modern World. And the question is, how do these two go together? And in fact, how do we get from one to the other? Because there's this relationship between them. Um, there is a need um, in the world for us to, as Christians to understand what are the difficulties and challenges that we face today? Some of which we're going to see are universal challenges that the church has always faced, but some of which are different because every age is um, both similar to that which preceded it, but also has, uh, is different in some ways. It looks different, it feels different. The church's obligations are the same, but the strategies, the way we respond might be different according to the age. So there's a great need for us to understand how we got here so we can understand what went wrong. We might be able to find um, some insight into how the church ought to be living in the context of this difficult world. Um, <clears throat> that how we got to where we're at now, which by all accounts is an exceedingly strange world. I mean, the world's always strange, right? It's always mysterious. but Perhaps never more so than in our lifetime. And maybe people have said that in the past. I'm a firm believer that um, in some ways the more things change, the, way, the more they remain the same. 
Having said that, there are some unique challenges to the world today. It's definitely changing at a faster pace. It's disorienting. Some of the changes that are taking place really are un unprecedented. In my study of history, I've not come across any culture that actually thought a man was a woman before. So some, there are some things that are new. That's great. That's just not only wrong, that's just it's, it's exceedingly strange. So how do we get there? Well, that's a long story. We're going to try to draw out some uh, answers from that. As we um, try to understand who we are, where we've been, where we're at, and perhaps where we should be going, um, ask questions all along the way. Um, I'm doing my best to kind of map this out, but there's a lot more that could be said. And uh, questions always generate good thinking. Um, and not questions not just historically about well, what do you mean or, or can you fill in the blanks, but any questions too about, well, so what? That's always a big question of history, right? It's not just an idle exercise. It's the so what is the payoff. What's the meaning for today? Uh, we want to be able to apply history to the world today that we live in. That's, that's the gist of it. So along the way, I want to um, emphasize several themes. And I'm not sure how good of a job I'll do of keeping track of all these, but I want to at least articulate them up front. Um, because whenever you, pick, uh, whenever you teach historical themes, you're always picking and choosing what to focus on, um, what matters, how we make sense of it all, so it's not just this undifferentiated mass of factoids. First of all, um, and I find this one actually strangely reassuring. It's threatening to some people. There is no golden age of the church. Now, um, why might that be discouraging to some people? No golden age of the church. Don't make any progress. Things. You know, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this, right? Uh, because we want to say, hey, this is when God's people at the church, they have it all together. Let's go back and be just like them. It's a good impulse, but it's a little bit problematic. Um, I'll give you some, some probing questions. You, you tell me um, what your response is to this. Okay, let's, let's pick some of the key points where people say this is the golden age of the church. Um, but what are some of these where people say this is it? This is like the touchstone. This is the place where we should go back to because they had it all together. The early church. The early church, right? The early church, which we do go back to as Anglicans because there's some special insights that those first centuries have being that close to Christ and the apostles. Um, here's my counter, <clears throat> two things. Um, let's start with, with the apostolic age, right? With the apostles themselves. When's the last time any of you read 1 Corinthians? The reason I ask is because what was that church like? It messed up. It was messed up. It makes the American church look almost like normal, you know, comparison. It's like, there's some really bad stuff going on. Um, who was the pastor of that church? St. Paul. Right? I mean, in some ways, he was, he was so, so, so without the golden age, we're going to go back to the Galatians. You fools, Galatians, who has bewitched you, right? I mean, that was bad. Well, all right, wait, wait, wait. They hadn't quite gotten their stuff together. The age of the great councils, right? They figured out the Trinitarian Christological heresies. Was that a, was that the golden age? No. Not yeah. Did you read any of the counts of the councils? It's like making sauce. Like there's really ugly pictures there. There are all sorts. I mean, why do they call it councils, by the way? Because they were filled with heresies, right? It's like so many of the Christians. I mean, Athanasius against the world, right? In the East, it's not quite like there's only one guy, but most people are Arians. The majority of Christians in the East were heretics. So that was surely the golden age. William, was your hand up? Yeah, it could go on. 
What? Is that the golden age? Yeah, okay, and that's, um, what is the Edict of Milan? Okay, it's where um, it's where Constantine becomes a Christian, and so the um, um, and then in 390, it's not actually Constantine's Theodosius 390 that the Christianity becomes the official religion. Not everybody had to be Christian, but there were certain cultural quirks. Once again, if you read the history books, you realize, oh wait, not the Golden Age. I've got a better answer. This is the final answer. Okay, the Reformation. Your laugh. I'm offended. Shock. Why, why not the Reformation? Anyway, the church fragmented. <laughs> well, I'm used that. Um, which Reformation? How about the Kingdom of Munster, where you've got this psychotic, you know, evil autocrat who thinks he's the Messiah reincarnated and just does what he wants, and um, they get rid of the church and the sacraments and ministers and make up the scriptures. That, that was the Golden Age, right? So all these different Reformations. And then, um, well, English Reformation, well, there is Henry VIII, you know, and all that. <laughs> so, no golden age. It's reassuring because the church is always struggling with these things. The church is, is filled with imperfect sinners, and yet God has always uh, chosen to work through the mystical body of Christ. So we're going to see that time and again. Every age, therefore, has some good things about it because God is always with his people. The Spirit's always filling the temple. And there's some negative things about it. Because we're working out of salvation with fear and trembling to varying degrees. Second theme is the church has been through worse. One of the great things, the uh, great um, benefits that I derive from teaching church history and studying it deeply is that we've been through worse things before. Um, there are times when the church in certain parts of the world have been nearly wiped out. We are beginning to see early stages of what is likely to be persecution, not just to the West more generally, but more specifically in the United States. We're, we're a little more insulated. Um, it's going to happen, or it is happening, far um, sooner and um, more threateningly in Canada, for example. Um, but I'll tell you what it's not. It's not the year 1600 in Japan, where a new dynasty comes to uh, power, and Christianity which had perhaps 100,000 people, um, largely under the Jesuits, was completely wiped out, just ruthlessly exterminated. Mm -hmm. So not all persecution is that extreme. When we're not facing that, we're not facing the early persecutions under um, 10 persecutions of Rome, especially Diocletians. Uh, things could get worse, right? Um, so as long as we have a tendency to wring our hands and look at what's going wrong, we can't see, therefore, the ways in which God is actually active and alive in the world. Third is um, the history is a superlative teacher. It's a great teacher if we take the time to learn it, and if we don't come in with preconceived notions and write our own version of it to, to confirm what we already know, there are all sorts of lessons about how um, God works in the world, about how God's people have responded heroically, and sometimes how they've responded poorly and giving us examples of what not to do. So history is a, it's a great teacher because it teaches us about the challenges that the people of God have faced um, and the proper and improper ways to respond. And out of that, too, since history is a story, it's God's story, um, we find a lot of encouragement as well from studying the saints who have gone before us, that is, people who have stood up for the faith in similar circumstances with 
the same kind of difficulties and the same challenges, and yet they gave their lives for the faith. So there's great encouragement in history as well. Um, along with the idea of as the church fathers, and in some way, privilege them as interpreters of the Bible, we're not talking about going back to um, fourth century Asia Minor or somewhere and saying, well, let's go back and do exactly what they did. Or we're going to go back to the churches that were under uh, Paul's supervision. There's a pretty good reason for that, because we can't, even if we want to. Um, and even if we try to, we, we don't really know that much about it. Um, <coughs> the 21st century in Tyler, Texas. That's, that's our call. So we can learn from the past, but we're not talking about simply having nostalgia for the past. And, oh, I wish we could go back to that better time. If we went back, we'd be, um, we'd be really surprised. Because um, we tend to read history in um, uh, kind of monochrome. We want to read it either all positively or negatively. So we can't go back what we don't need to. We go back in the, only in the sense of retrieving what needs to be retrieved and revival needs to be revived. But we don't literally go back, we just go backwards and gain wisdom from the past that we might move forward. Um, one of the points that I hope to make along the way too is that in spite of the ways in which the church has failed, in spite of the ways in which it's very clear in the 21st century that the world, say in America, the culture, is turning against Christianity and against the church, that um, there, over the course of the last 2,000 years, the church, or I should say, not the church, it's really Jesus Christ has gifted the world many wonderful gifts. Many, if not most, of the things that we value about life, that we think are good as Americans, as American Christians, they're things that God has brought to us historically through the church that weren't there necessarily um, in the first century, before Christ. Here's, just a, here's a list. I'm working on this idea because it fascinates me. Uh, there's an exalted view of marriage. We take for granted that marriage is marriage and the church has always valued it. That's not the case. Um, Christians understood marriage, certainly St. Paul did, but pretty early on, you know, they also are in, um, imbibing Roman views of marriage, which are not as not identical to those of Christianity. So Christianity, uh, or the church, had not always valued marriage the way that it has. We're seeing that being undone, by the way. But Christianity was the one that really exalted the notion of marriage. Um, secondly, and this one is a little easier to see, Christianity is the, is the driving force behind exalting women and promoting them from being universally second-class citizens in the ancient world to being considered of equal worth and dignity with men. Jesus Christ did that for his church. We assume that now, and it's gotten all twisted, so much so that so many of these good gifts of Christ in the church have been perverted to the opposite, and there's a reaction to the church, and therefore in doing that, they're, they're, they're killing the goose of the way the golden egg. But it was the church that gave us that. We would take it for granted that the children would be highly valued. And it's not that parents didn't have any more control in the past, but a special valuation of children, um, and seeing them not just as being little adults who should be put to work as soon as possible. Christianity also did that. Christianity, the church, abolished slavery. Um, we tend to bring our hands in obsess over our own um, sins of slavery, which we have in our nation, but we forget that slavery was endemic in the ancient medieval, um, even <clears throat> early modern world. 
It was everywhere. It was assumed. Very few people questioned it, except Christians. It took a long time for the church to finally get its act together and work to abolish it, but it happened directly from Christians uh, doing that. Um, and in fact, it's um, uh, sometimes it's, people talk about the evils of colonization. Well, the evils of colonization, most specifically the British Empire, is what largely put an end to slavery in the modern world, which is unheard of in the world. Everyone just accepted it. Even if Christians thought it was wrong, no one had a plan for how to get it. I was going to comment that that too is coming back. It's, it's coming back. It's a real effort to it's, reinstitute slavery. Right. It's so it, it is, slavery is, in the, in the um, fallen world, these things that are coming back, these uh, seven demons that are worse than the first one are coming back, um, this is the natural state of the world without Christ after the fall. That's what we're seeing. So all these things are coming back. Children are not being valid anymore. Marriage is, uh, there is a determined effort to destroy the family and marriage. Um, exalting women, well, actually, in the name of exalting women, women are being demeaned and used horribly by the force of the say, it's all to protect them. Uh, there is, it's been a huge reduction in racism. It doesn't mean that any of these things are perfect, by the way. But only Christianity ever addressed the issue of racism and said that Jews and Gentiles are equally part of the church. Um, it's not to deny that there are races, but it's to say that God doesn't value one more highly than the other. Every ancient culture thought, my tribe, my nation is the best, morally superior. My God's better than your God. I'm better than you are. Um, I don't have fellowship with you. I can do whatever I want you. I can lie, cheat, steal. It's kind of the way that a lot of Muslims still think, which that, that, that modern culture that only protects its own. Christianity broke the back of that and said, you have to actually care for somebody who's not part of your extended kinship group. You have to actually care for somebody who's not you. That's the, that's the height of love, even your enemies. Christianity gave us that. Um, the idea of a just and limited war, that there might be a war, but there's, there's very particular channels under which war must be guided, was something that Christians worked out in the Middle Ages. Widespread literacy, education, the invention of universities. The <coughs> universities that any culture ever produced, they produced academies, but not really universities till about the year 1200 in Western Europe. Um, the idea that all of human life is made in the image of God, therefore, has dignity. That's, that's a Christian idea. That idea, whether it's men or women or children, or unborn children, or the elderly, or the sick, or those who um, are mentally incapacitated, they're made in the image of God. They're all, all equally valuable for God. It's a Christian idea. Modern science, in the many ways in which it has given us um, better lives on an um, earthly level, capitalism and unprecedented health and wealth, which are good things, by the way. We're not saved by them, but the lessons of God has come through the church. Equal rights for all. The care for the poor. The ancient world didn't really do much with the poor. You know, the best you could do is give them bread and surfaces to distract them, but that's not the same as caring for them. You know, it's to make sure that they don't revolt, but other than that, they're really, they're inferior, right? The poor are just down here. Christianity has, has got this urge, this insistent urge, to go out and care for those who are marginalized. So some of that's being abused now and twisted, but these are all things that God has worked out in time through history through the church. So even though this is being undone, if you went back 2,000 years ago, even though Christ and the apostles walked the earth, you would see this, these things, the opposite of these things all around you. And so 
when we once we um, faint and become discouraged and think that you know everything's kind of like taking a nosedive, um, well, this is the good news, right? Um, Christ's kingdom has been extended throughout the earth in many, many ways that we don't see because we take it for granted. We just think this stuff is is, is here, and now that it's being threatened, starting to unravel. I mean, something as simple as free speech. That's a Christian ideal as well, by the way. That somebody who's not from your religious group, your tribe, your kinship group, has an equal right to speak in the public sphere. You're not going to shut him down or censor him. That's being taken away. I thought that would be here forever. You know, it's not. These are things we can lose them. Um, number seven, most important of all, is what I like to point. It is keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't be distracted by all this other stuff. Um, don't look too much at your social media feed um, when you're going to see every bit of bad news that happens to seven and a half billion people. Um, any of you have ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty? And he starts taking these prayer requests. There's like millions and millions of people that roll by and say, how can I possibly answer them all? Well, God can do that because he's infinite. You can't. Um, my bet, because uh, uh, we're all in the same boat, is that you're probably not doing all that you should do with yourself, your family, your extended family, your friends, and your parishioners of Good Shepherd. When you've taken care of them and done all you should for them, then you can start worrying about those other seven and a half billion people. Not that we shouldn't care, but we can get overwhelmed, and then you just do nothing, right? Um, and you see the bad news that constantly is, is out there. Well, the good news is there's always bad news, right? And it's always been there, and there's, there's good news as well. Um, so, if we keep our eyes on what on God Himself and His Son, and what He's really asked us to do, which is almost always lawful, that will um, promote sanity, right? And that will that will give us something that we can actually do about the evil of the world, because the evil is not just out there; it's in here and it's here, and that's what that's the science that God has asked us to deal with. All right, I want to um, go to the second point, which is the the strangeness. Of the ancient world. Now, I've already alluded to that in the many ways in which the world's been changed. If those are things that were changed by Christ and his church for the better, then that means that things were not always that way. We should keep this in mind whenever we read the scriptures. Um, it's easy for us in our, uh, in our earnestness and desire to have the scriptures uh, be applied to us today, which we should do, to kind of jump over 2,000 years of history and make lots of assumptions about what the New Testament world has actually mean. Um, if they were teleported to us today, um, they would just, um, they would probably just have a meltdown, just because it's such a, such a different world. I'm not even talking about all the things that are evil. I'm just saying well, the world is, is a very different place. If they had um, been teleported to the world in 1000 AD, they probably would, would have recognized it in many ways. Today, it would be bewildering. The world's changed a lot. Um, so here's a couple of assumptions that the ancient world will make that we don't any longer. And there's a lot more that I didn't think of yet. One is um, the idea of corporate personality. That is, that a person is a person in relationship. That you're not an autonomous individual. And it's been centuries, and that's part of the story that we'll be telling, is um, how do we get to the point where we have an autonomous individual? Um, that when you, when you ask somebody who they are, they're not a Jew, a Greek, a Christian, um, whatever it might be, but I'm just me. Just kind of this plankton floating in the cosmos. That's a very, very modern idea, late modern idea. 
Um, you wouldn't find it. You won't find it in any ancient cultures, not just Christian cultures, but it's the idea that I'm always part of a larger community. I am only who I am because I'm a member of a tribe, and that's my primary identity: is the community. I'm a part of it. This is the way Christians should think as well. We have a primary community; it's called the church. So your fundamental identity is that you're a child of God, a member of Christ, and a member of His body. It's not that you have your own independent existence apart from Christ or the church, therefore. That's a very ancient, um, universal way of thinking until the modern Western world has, has kind of disrupted that. So the idea that there's corporate personality, so much so that this um, corporate personality stands not only through space, um, that is that I'm attached to Jackie, who I don't see here, or just like that, and William, and now I'm attached to Megan as well, and other people. Um, but I'm also attached to people who came before, not just my father and grandparents, but going back through the church and through Christ, we're connected through time, not only through space. Um, you might remember in the, when the writer of Hebrews is articulating the greatness of Melchizedek, he's talking about the tithe, and he talks about how um, with um, Levi and, the, and the, the priestly system and so on, He's talking about how he's already in his loins, like there's this strange thing going on, that I'm connected to people who were centuries before me, and I'm connected to people who are yet to come. Um, and they're connected always through the covenantal head. For us, it's Christ. But in the Old Testament, for example, for the Jews, you're connected through Abraham. Um, so much so that there's a lively, living sense that they would say, when we were in Egypt, when I was in Egypt, hundreds of years later, well, how can that be? That was that generation a long, long time ago that we've forgotten. Because there's that sense of connectedness that we've lost over space and time. So that's a different assumption that made this, that's made throughout history until pretty recently. Um, the world, until very recently, was a primarily oral culture. It doesn't mean that some people weren't literate, but that was the elites. That was a minority of people until very, very recently. It has a lot to do with the printing press, but there's other aspects as well. So the way the world works... It's not print-based. It couldn't be print-based. There was no print, really. It manuscripts. It wasn't even written, um, except for the elites. Um, I've talked some about, about kinship groups, but I want to talk more about this. I've been researching this lately. Um, that the world was um, revolved around kinship groups. Um, in fact, I, I first came across this, at least in any detail, while I was doing some research on um, English church history. It's how often... Um, the kings and the bishops and the abbots all come from the same families. And even though it looks like nepotism, that you're just simply rewarding people who are of the same bloodline, it's, it's much more, it's much deeper than that. In some ways it was very long but in some ways it's just the way the ancient world worked, is that you protect, you facilitate those people who are in your kinship group, and everyone else in a sense is kind of out there. You don't owe them anything. Um, you, you keep things in the gold boy network. That's actually a very ancient way of doing things. It kind of offends us as modern Christians who are, uh, the modern Americans who look at the world very differently, but that's the way the world worked in the past. Um, it's just constantly based on kinship groups. Christianity, and I still haven't figured this out. I've read a book that explains how it happened, but not why. Why did the church, the church began to um, change uh, Changes in very this way. Some some of that I know is because of um, the fact that there's um, 
there's Jews and, and Gentiles are part of the same church. So inherently, Christianity is going to break down some of these things based on blood and kinship groups. Our kinship is based on Christ. Um, water is thicker than blood. My relationship <coughs> to you, through Christ, is actually thicker and more important than my relationship to my biological family. Now, the best of all those would be to have your biological family be your ecclesiastical family as well. I'm very blessed in that way. But I'm more related to you than to those in my bloodline who aren't faithful to Christ. That's a radical thought. That's a Christian thought that would not have been understood in the ancient world. Um, in your uh, Book of Common Prayer, this is like the very last thing in the Book of Common Prayer. So I'm glad it's here. I remember talking about this with Gloria about a year ago. It's a table of kindred and affinity. So if you're ever wondering who you may or may not get married to, page 624, last thing in the prayer, the prayer book. I mean, the most obvious question is why is that even here? <laughs> and we think it's because, oh, we figured out that inbreeding, you know, it's over time you become the Hasbro's, right? With the Hasbro jaw and hemophilia and all these like recessive genes kind of stack up, and maybe not the best idea to have a small gene pool. Uh, well, no, that's not actually what, this is before Mendel, so we, didn't, we haven't figured out genetics yet. Except at the um, uh, phenotypical level, just the expression of the genes, not the actual genes. Um, so, wherein whosoever are related are forbidden by the church to marry together. And there's all this long list. Like I said, I'm still not quite sure why in the Middle Ages the church began to more aggressively address this, but when it did that, it broke down the ancient world that worked on kinship groups. Um, and it allowed us to really, I think, in a sense, to experience a greater kind of love for people who are not like us. That is, I'm going to give somebody this job, not just because you're my son, even though you're an idiot and a fool, <coughs> but I'm going to give it to, to Nicholas back there because he's better at the job. He's got better credentials and he's a more moral person. That's not the way the ancient world worked, necessarily. Okay? So this idea that somebody who's not in your kinship group um, you actually might value as much or more than somebody. Um, and it had lots of implications for um, power structures that Christianity, and I don't think it was by design, but just incidentally broke down old power structures and new ones arose. It gave the chance for the church, actually, therefore, to be more dominant in some ways, because it's less based simply on family structures as the ancient world was. Um, Number four is the sacred world. Up until pretty recently, even if you weren't a Christian, the assumption is that the world is sacred. And the God, if you're a monotheistic religion, God or the polytheistic religion gods, what is has been um, designed by the gods. It's been ordered by the gods. It's there for a reason. There's a givenness to the structure of reality that you have to respect. If you don't, then you are, in a sense, cursed by the gods. If you do, you are blessed by the gods. There is a sense, therefore, pervasive throughout the ancient world and until um, really the early modern age in some ways, for example, that kings were semi-divine. Uh, there's a last gasp effort of this, um, you'll see in the Church of England, with the divine right of kings. Um, and some people think of that as being kind of an innovation or something. That's actually the last guest effort to cling to the ancient world that was universally understood. Once again, when I look at English church, early English church history, the assumption until the 11th century, which we'll get to in a moment, the assumption was that kings were semi-divine. 
They are put in place by God. And you can see in the scriptures where you might get that idea, right? That God's instituted the governing authorities. So you have a right to rebel against them. Um, this was the way the ancient world universe they worked. Um, kings, sometimes there was something called the king's touch. I don't think it worked very well, but you could touch people and they would be healed. People were probably sadly disappointed, you know. And, uh, but it's an ancient world. We have things that are different. But the whole world has a coherent order. It's ordered by God. It's hierarchical. It's structured. There's a givenness to it. It's a world that Charles Taylor, the sociologist, says it would have been impossible for people to imagine that God or the gods didn't exist. And in his book called The Sacred Ages, this big fat poem I'm working through, it's a magnificent work of sociology. He's trying to explain how do we get from this sacred world where um, it's also an enchanted world, it's another word that people use, where the gods are present and active and physical things have, have meaning. Um, how do we get from a world where it's impossible to think that there weren't gods to a world where it's quite imaginable to just do away with the gods altogether? Even if you're a Christian, you can spend 99% of your days not thinking about God. He just doesn't enter into many of your thoughts. That's sort of what we're tracking in this class as well, is how do we get from that idea? That's a strange idea. Um, but to us, it's commonplace. Well, of course, some people are atheists. It's just a matter of personal choice. It's not a whole world order that binds everybody together in a God-ordained uh, whole. So that's vastly different today. Um, let's see. Oh yeah, the, um, the ancient world's view of um, people is there is there are some good aspects to hierarchy. God is instituted authorities in the church, in the family, in culture as a whole. There are employees and employers, and so on. But in doing that, the ancient world tended to think that in this hierarchy, those who were on top were in some ways more virtuous or were simply better people. There was that kind of correlation. So that women, children, and slaves, in many ways, were assumed to be kind of second-class citizens, which we've already talked about how Christianity changed that. We take that for granted. We take these truths to be self-evident. That is a very modern statement, and I mean that in a, in a very technical sense, to say that these truths are self-evident. Well, in the late 18th century, these truths were self-evident for Christians who were also reading a lot of Locke and Rousseau. <coughs> Earlier, that would not be self-evident, that the uh, consent of the governed was necessary. That's a new idea, historically. And, by the way, it's no longer self-evident today either, those, those truths. It's not self-evident to people that there's a creator. Um, so that's a, that's a historical moment that is saying these are self-evident truths. Now everything is contested. Um, other aspects of the ancient world um, that are very different. The majority of the people worked the land. And the majority of the people working the land didn't own the land, didn't, didn't uh, derive any income from it. Most of them were <coughs> slaves or indentured servants or maybe sharecroppers in some sense where they, they eat out of living. The vast majority of people were peasants, serfs, uh, barely uh, had a sustainable living. Uh, whereas today, I don't know what the percentage is down to the people who are farmers, but it's, it's very low. It's something like 1%, isn't it? Um, and that's actually pretty recent. If you look at the demographics of where Americans used to reside, you can see that we've all flocked to the cities, uh, and not just the New Yorks and the Chicagos and the Dallases. Uh, Tyler, historically, is a metropolis. I know 
Look at the date that Jews come from Dallas. It doesn't seem like it by comparison, right? In the ancient world at the time of Christ, Tyler would have been tied for the uh, fourth and fifth largest city in the, in the known world. That's how big it is by historical standards. Today, it's like way down there, even in the U.S. I'm aware of it. It's not, you know, it doesn't get the top 50 or whatever. Top 100, probably. So we're far more urban, um, in, in, at least as a whole, overall. Um, and that, that means something. Um, when we look at, at Rome, historically, the reason we have to look at Rome is because um, the, the world for the next millennium is constantly reacting to this Roman heritage in various ways. Um, in fact, even later than that, you can see some of the time the Fathers going back to the Roman Republic and deriving political theory and so on. Um, so Rome, um, we know in many ways it's an empire, and it was cruel, and um, just like every ancient empire was, but also there were a lot of ways in which it helped to kind of tame the world, civilize the world. It's always interesting to me when you read the um, New Testament, um, what, does, what seems to be the attitude of the New Testament writers, gospel writers, epistle writers, towards the Romans? Is it all universally, well, this is the evil empire, and we should subvert them? Would you generally pretty painful, right? Um, it's, you know, it's not saying, well, Caesar's evil, therefore we don't have to pay taxes, therefore we cannot do whatever we want. And this local guy is hassled, so we don't have to respect him. It's really the opposite. Christianity didn't have an agenda of taking down the empire. It did it anyway, but, but in a very different way. Um, Rome, um, it did create law and order. Yeah, in a cool way, but not by historical standards, by the way. It actually was probably less cool than its competitors. By our standards, yeah, it's still cool. Um, it uh, kept law and order. You can see in... Um, uh, in spite of Pontius Pilate, you can see in the, the uh, life of Paul that in many ways they really try to get things right. And even in terms of the persecution, there are many stories where the local politicians are trying their best not to put the Christians to death. And the Christians are saying, please, please, but can you just please, can I please be a martyr? And they're saying, well, you know, I'm going to give you one more chance. Can we just do like the, the barest pinch of instance? I'll just turn my back and pretend you did it. And it's like, no. Um, so they're actually, in some ways, honorable. Um, finally, um, Christianity, as I've already said, has slowly transformed the world for the better. So, where we're going to pick up next week is with the 11th century. Um, history is a seamless tune, it's all woven together, and we have to pick kind of arbitrary dates to start and end our discussions. So, rather than going back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, that would make this a really long course. Uh, we're going to start in the 11th century because I, I believe in my studies that this is actually the decisive century. It's the fulcrum of modern history where everything changes. Um, just a short list of things that are important. East-West Schism, 1054. Also the same year, by the way, that the Chinese astronomers discovered the Crab Nebula had exploded. I find that interesting. Astronomy. The Crusades, which happened at the end of the 11th century. The Norman Conquest, which forever changed English history. And most importantly, what we'll pick up with next week is the Papal Revolution. Um, each week as I uh, present, I hope to give you a abbreviated bibliography. If you're interested in studying some of these ideas in more detail, these are some of the books that I've been, been reading. Uh, any last questions or comments? We're almost out of time. We'll get into it more deeply next week. I have a question. Yeah. You brought up that last page in the Book of Common Prayer where the 
the ones that you can and cannot marry. Right. Where did that come from based on what scriptures, etc.? I was just interestingly, I was looking for brother's widow just because of Henry VIII. But, right. Uh, you know. No, no, it's, it's very interesting if you look at it. Um, some things you think would be there aren't there. And there's a long list of ones you would think, well, why is this here? That's the part I've not figured out. Because the book that I've, I'm reading this telling me a lot about how this transformed the world. Uh, it talks about that the um, uh, medieval church changed these things, and it gives, it gives a long list of ways, beginning even in the um, early medieval age, you know, like the 6th and 7th century, there's various councils that are, are, are um, putting limits on these things. What that book didn't tell me is why. It doesn't, so that's, that's the big mystery. I'm trying to find somebody that can help me figure out why is the church doing this, because it's really was unprecedented. But, you know, and, and you can't really get it directly from the scripture, so I'm not sure... Yeah, you can't. Some of the taboos the scriptures say, right? Those are the easy ones, but everything else, you know, why that picky? I'm not sure. It's just a note of interest. We're probably out of time, but years ago we were doing a Bible study in the church I was at then. But it was about the law, you know, the Old Testament Torah, and specifically there was, you know, lists of who you could and could not right. marry. Mm -hmm. And one of them was uh, an uncle could marry his niece, but an aunt could not marry her nephew, and it was just kind of like. It was a juxtaposition which you could only think of, well, yeah. in terms of could this couple have children or this couple not. That might have been it, but that was there, and yet here in this list. Right. And the number one category in the ancient world for people who got married, it wasn't, you know, even in the ancient world, there were um, incest taboos, like brothers or sisters, but cousins uh, was a very, very common thing. Cousins were married cousins. And for some reason, the church puts limits on that that had not been there before, even in the early church. So that's the part of my um, detective work I still have to do. Just a quick comment on that. Um, the first missionaries to England from Rome uh, that reestablished Roman connection to mm -hmm. England in the 800s, Gregory, uh, <coughs> Gregory sent them. And they come, they mail back questions. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. And sure. one of the one of the earliest questions is, how do we deal with this problem of all this intermarriage going on? Right. And that, that uh, gives you a little window into. Yeah, I mean, I've forgotten, I've forgotten that. Right. That's not usually the one people look at, but uh, that's right. He had all these cultural questions. This is a different culture. That. Um... All right. We'll pick this up.